So we're in this rule of life practice series. And so first let me say, if you do not yet have a rule of life guidebook, um, it's not dated. That means that you can start it whenever you want. And so, um, you know, we're well into the series, but you can go back and start at the beginning and start to work your way through. That's totally fine. In fact, for most of you, you'll find that each week's uh, practice will take longer than a week anyway. So that's no problem. Just keep working through stuff as you go. Uh, all of those practice guides are out in the lobby. You can also get them online, uh, a PDF copy of those online. Um, so as we jump into this, I, I want to start with a, a quote from Blaise Pascal, which is a, a fascinating concept that he lays out. He, Pascal says this, all of the unhappiness of man arises from one single fact that they cannot stay quietly alone in their room. That's a, a provocative idea. What's even more provocative to me is that Pascal wrote that in 1670. What do you think he'd think today? Like if Pascal was today uh, speaking, like uh, how would he engage that? Because you know, um, over the last 15 years, we've actually like fundamentally redefined what boredom is. I don't know if you know this, but if you've been alive long enough, you probably get this. Uh, boredom used to be an absence of things to do. So a long time ago, way back in the olden days, there, there were times when you just didn't have anything to do. Like you're waiting in line at the grocery store and you had to wait in line. Like that was it. You'd go to the doctor's office and you'd sit and as the doctor was running behind, because it's a doctor's office and that's what happens, right? You just sit and you'd read the terrible magazines that they ordered, whatever it was, it's some terrible thing, you'd have to read that. Or if, if you got on a plane and it was a long flight and you brought a book, because that's what they used to have, books, like they were with paper in them and stuff, um, and then you'd finish reading your book and then you're like, done. And then there's like some awkward person beside you who wants to have a conversation and you're like, please, no, maybe that's just me, that's happened to me a lot. So you, you had this time where it's like, like you, you had an absence of doing, but in the last 15 years, boredom has been fundamentally redefined. Now it's no longer an absence of doing. Now it's a, I'm bored of doing what I'm doing. So uh, boredom now is in the midst of activity. See, here's the thing. Boredom used to be an opportunity to be because we ceased doing. We didn't have anything to do. We had an opportunity to be. But now when we have those opportunities, we just shift our doing because we quickly reach for the phone. Right? We're just like, oh, there's, there's something I can do. Let me give you an illustration of this. Um, I don't know if you could put a marker, a date and time on the turning point in the civil rights movement, but many people cite January 27th, 1956 as that marker. In fact, it was the middle of the night. Martin Luther King Jr. was a couple years into his ministry um, and was also working with a group of activists in the midst of the Montgomery bus boycott. And uh, there was a decision that happened that night on January 27th, 1956, about 2 a.m., that shifted where everything was going. Let me try to recount it for you from uh, one of his biographers. As King's wife, Coretta, and his 10-week-old daughter, Yolanda, slept in the master bedroom nearby, the voice on the other end of the line said, with a racial slur, we're tired of your mess. And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're gonna blow up your house and blow your brains out. Now, King had gotten lots of these calls before, but this one, for whatever reason, hit him differently. And so his biographers record that he got up in the middle of the night about 2 a.m. 
and he made a cup of coffee and he began to process. And soon, that cup of coffee led to his hands, his head in his hands as he uh, was processing and he prayed out loud in the middle of the night, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right, but I must confess I'm losing my courage. And what King later said happened was there was this voice inside of him. And the voice inside of him said to him, Martin Luther, stand up for truth, stand up for justice, stand up for righteousness. And he marks that day as the day that the civil rights movement truly began because he was willing to do whatever it took. Now, very real hypothetical question. What if he had an iPhone? Like, what if, in 1956, he was like, oh, man, I'm so stressed. I'll check Instagram. That always calms me down. I'll, I'll just see how many text message threats I've gotten since I went to bed. I'll just start to scroll. Even as simple as I'll just turn on the TV. Hypothetically, what would have happened? Of course, there's no way of knowing. But maybe a more personal hypothetical, how many encounters with God like that do we miss because we do have an iPhone or because we do have the TV to turn on? Because we never have any time where we're just being. Richard Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, uh, makes this statement. Our adversary, the devil, majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. I don't know about you, but if I was going to list the three things that Satan majored in, noise, hurry, and crowds wouldn't even make the top 20 list, right? Like that, that seems like that's way down the list. But when you think about the decisions we make that lead to some of the root sins that we wrestle with, they're often perpetrated by the distraction of our lives, the busyness of our lives, the noise of our lives, all of the temptations and all of the messages that are surrounding us all the time. Those are the things that lead us in the wrong direction. Noise, hurry, and crowds, Foster said. Which is why quiet, cultivating silence and solitude and presence before God should be a part of all of our rules of life. We need space. And we need space where we're not having inputs, where we're not having a, a phone to, to scroll, we're not having a glowing screen in front of us. It's just us and God in the quiet. The 16th century mystic, St. John of the Cross, wrote it this way. God's first language is silence, he said. Thomas Keating, when he was commenting on that, that uh, word from St. John of the Cross, said this, everything else is a poor translation. In order to understand this language, we must learn to be silent and to rest in God. Learn to be silent and to rest in God. If, if you've ever tried to be silent, you can uh, sympathize with the fact that we have to learn to be silent. Our life is so full, and the inputs are so great, and the doing is so much, that cultivating a life that can be silent before God is real work, and we have to learn to do it. And so how do we step into that? Well, I want to look at several different vignettes from the early life and ministry of Jesus. What you're going to find in Mark chapter 1 is that um, in the midst of a lot of uh, a lot that's happening, Jesus is finding time to be. 
And I think it gives us a model as well. And so Lizzie is going to come and read for us uh, from Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. She'll read from 9 to, I think, 15, and then uh, 32 to 39. All right. Thank you. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Thank you, Lizzie. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that your model for us is one that can instruct us in the midst of a world that's 2,000 years removed, that's so different. And yet, there's so much that we can gain from the way that you've modeled life for us. And so God, would you open our ears and our eyes and our spirits to what it is that you have to say to us? God, um, cultivate the ground of our, our hearts. We, we need a place for the seed of your word to land. And so God, would you do that in us? God, I pray that my words would come from you alone. The words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain. God, we, we long to hear from you. And so speak to us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a lot in this passage. Uh, Mark 1 is one of my favorite passages. Many of you probably heard me speak on it before because it's one that I come back to over and over again. In fact, it's one I think we need to, as a people, come back to again and again. And so uh, this time around, I'd like to look at what we find in the quiet, what happens in the quiet. And so there's three things I want to pull out of it. The first one is in the quiet, we hear the truth. In the quiet, we confront the lies. And in the quiet, we remember who we are. We hear the truth confront the lies, and remember who we are. So we began reading near the beginning of Mark's gospel. So Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of backstory of Jesus. He uh, picks up Jesus as uh, roughly a 30-year-old man 
who is about to step into his ministry. And uh, at that first step of his ministry was really not him doing anything at all. He went out to the, the desert, to the wilderness, where John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan. Um, there may have been a handful of people out there. It may have just been him and John. We're not sure who was there. We're not sure what it looked like. But John was regularly out in the wilderness baptizing people, and Jesus decided he needed to be baptized. There are other gospel accounts that give us more specifics. All that Mark says is he went to be baptized. And when he descended into the Jordan and came up out of the Jordan, a voice from heaven spoke over him. Now you think Jesus is the son of God. He's actually uh, divine himself. He probably hears the voice of God a lot. What's fascinating is we don't have a lot of recording of Jesus hearing the voice of God. This is one of just a handful of times that the voice of God expressed something out loud to, to Jesus. And in this instance, the voice of God says to Jesus, voice of the father says over the son, This is my son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Now, you've probably heard that. If you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard that uh, sentence uh, a bunch of times. You're probably familiar with it. But we tend to go over it a little bit too quickly because we forget the fact that Jesus is at the outset of his ministry. So he has he's not taught a sermon. He has not called and equipped a disciple. He has not done one miracle. He has not fed the multitudes with a Chick-fil-A combo meal, which is what it says in the message. That's a different uh, different translation, but it's the same kind of gig, right? It's like he hasn't done any of that stuff yet. Like he he has literally, like his work in ministry so far has been to uh, leave the little village that he was in, walk out in the middle of the wilderness and get dipped in the river. That's it. That's all he's done. And, And God the Father says over him, this is my son whom I love In him I am well pleased. Not because he's done anything, not because of even what he's going to do, but right now in this moment, with him, I am well pleased. For a lot of us, the voice that we need to hear before we get into anything else that we need to see in this passage is simply that voice. I say it to you regularly, and I think we need to hear it over and over and over again. The most important thing about you is that God loves you, and he loves you right where you are, and he's not expecting anything more of you. He loves you. He speaks over us. You are my son. You are my daughter. And in you, I am well pleased. Not I will be, not if you not I was, in you I am well pleased. And I can say that for certain because the entire first chapter of Ephesians is Paul teaching us the truth that we are in Christ. So all that is Christ is ours and all that is us is in Christ, is is caught up in Christ. So what that means is because God the Father is well pleased with Jesus, he is equally well pleased with you and I because we are in Christ. The, the identity that we work out of is the identity of having been accepted and loved by God. So we have to start there. Like all of the other stuff, for some of you, all the other stuff I'm about to say, you can just like, you can just meditate on that. Just like write that down and stick with that for a little bit. And then I'll talk to some other people because like we need to get that. Because if we don't start there, everything else we're doing is trying to either earn identity or prove identity but none of it needs to be earned or proven. It's already true of you. You're my son. You're my daughter. In you, I am well pleased. It'd be great if it could just land there, but 
the way that Mark records it is like with, <laughs> without even anything but the, the end quotation mark. So that was the end of uh, verse 11. In verse 12, it says, the spirit, spirit immediately drove him out to the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but the spiritual high is often followed by the wilderness. And the spirit drives Jesus from uh, what had to be this incredible experience. Like when, when, when you're talking about the Trinitarian God, one of the ways you talk about the Trinitarian God is out of Mark chapter one. Like there's this moment where the son and the father and the spirit descending like a dove are all present in one place at one time. Like what an incredible experience. And from there, the spirit drives Jesus out to the wilderness. That word wilderness in Greek is the word aremos. Aremos uh, can be translated wilderness. It has a bunch of translations through the, somebody's talking to me. Oh, Siri's talking to me. Quiet, Siri. I don't want to talk to you. Stop it. No, I don't even know who you are. Leave me alone. I know, right? Look at that. I told you quiet is now. Now's the time for quiet. Um, so uh, Aremos gets translated lots of ways throughout the uh, New Testament, but it literally means the lonely place. So when, when you see that word Aremos, what's happening is someone is experiencing the lonely place. And so the Spirit drives Jesus out into the Aremos, into the lonely place. And there he's tempted by Satan. After the spiritual high of experiencing the voice of the Father, temptation comes in full bore. Some of you know what this feels like. This is, uh, in some instances, literal demonic voices that are tempting and speaking to us, tearing that identity down that God speaks into us. Sometimes it's just our own insecurities and our own voices that are comparing ourselves to others or uh, looking at the world around us and feeling like we don't measure up. Sometimes it's as simple as just like, you know, scrolling Instagram and saying like, I, my life doesn't match. You know, like I, I, I need to achieve more or my family needs to be better or my grades need to be higher or whatever the thing is. Like uh, the, the comparisons come in very quickly. And so whether those are literal voices or figurative voices or just uh, kind of our own imaginations, it's in the midst of hearing that identity that the temptation starts to come in. Matthew and Luke both record those temptations in uh, much more detail. We're not going to go into those. But there's been lots of uh, books written on the specifics of those temptations. Um, if you're wanting to dive in, there's a great little book by Henry Nouwen uh, called uh, in, the Spirit of, in the Spirit of Jesus, I think it is. I don't know if I even wrote it down. Um, but uh, Nouwen dis distinguishes those three temptations by, uh, by calling them uh, the temptation to be powerful, the temptation to be spectacular, and the temptation to be significant. And I think those are a great way to summarize it. I, I would look at it as um, words that I hear, and maybe you've heard at different times. Quick phrases that um, too often come into my head. One of those is uh, this phrase, prove it. Like, you think you're a child of God? Prove it. You think you have a relationship with Jesus? Prove it. Sh show what's true. And it's, it's a very subtle temptation because the Bible absolutely tells us to, to live according to our identity, to live like we are. But, but what the enemy says is, and if you can't, you're really not. Prove it because when you fail, you'll see that you're not really who you think you are. It's a subtle way of telling us you're not really a son of God. You're not really a daughter of God. You're not really loved by God. That voice just says, prove it. There's other times for me that that voice says, 
measure up, earn it. Like, if, if that's what you think you are, we'll see if you can get there. And so there's this uh, stretching and reaching of trying to be good enough. And when we're not good enough, when we fail as we inevitably will, there's a crash that comes in because that voice is constantly telling us to measure up. So it may say prove it, it may say measure up, or some of it may just be as simple as saying, yeah, but look at yourself. Like, look at your life. Like, you serious? You're gonna call yourself a child of God? You see what you did there? You see what you thought there? You see how you acted there? And the past comes up to define us. When we go into the wilderness, when we get into the lonely place, one of the first things that we find is that when we're alone with ourselves, ourself is not always our friend. Maybe you've experienced that. When you get alone and it's quiet, the voices in our head start to get louder and louder. And so for many of us, we hear that and we run from quiet. We grab a phone, we turn on the TV, we turn on some music, we grab a book, something, something to fill the space. And the problem with that is, if we don't ever encounter those voices, if we don't ever confront those lies that are being spoken to us, we never get to the other side of them. They're constantly nagging us in the back. Jesus spends 40 days fasting in the desert alone, encountering the enemy, hearing those voices, confronting the lies. The Quaker writer Parker Palmer talks about solitude like this. He says, solitude eventually offers a quiet gift of grace, a gift that comes whenever we're able to face ourselves honestly, the gift of acceptance, of compassion for who we are as we are. As we allow ourselves to be known in solitude, we discover that we are known by love. Beyond the pain of self-discovery, there's a love that does not condemn us but calls us to itself. This love receives us as we are. It takes time in solitude to get past that uh, journey of self-discovery. But what we find as we process through who we are is that Jesus is actually enough. And the love that he offers to us is defining to us. But we have to confront those lies with the truth. And we know that's what Jesus does because what Mark very simply records is that he goes out into the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil, and as he emerges from the wilderness, he emerges with a message. So you can see it uh, in uh, verse 15. Jesus' message very clearly is this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's it. Jesus says it over and over again. It becomes like the thesis statement for his ministry. Uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here. Everything's changing. So turn, believe the truth. Believe the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. So he emerges not doubting that he's the son of God. Remember, uh, in both Matthew and Luke, the temptations, each of the three temptations start with the tempter saying to Jesus, if you are the son of God. If that thing that was spoken over you is true, then do this. If you are the son of God, then do this. Jesus, having fallen for none of the temptations, emerges knowing that he is. He's confronted the lies with the truth, and he's emerged knowing who he is. And then, this quiet, eremos, solitary place wilderness 
gives birth to a whirlwind of ministry. So if you're reading through, we skipped over a bunch of the kind of the center of Mark chapter one, but Jesus uh, begins to call some disciples, and then as he calls disciples, he enters into a little healing spree. So first he does that very annoying thing that he's gonna do throughout the gospels, which is heal somebody on the Sabbath. That seems to be his gig. Like he likes to, like he has six other days, right? But he never does. He's always like, the Sabbath will be a good time, and he heals them on the Sabbath. Uh, And then he goes to uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house, which by the way, it was a long time time into reading the Bible before I realized there was a Mrs. Peter. That was like, that was revolutionary for me. It didn't, it didn't really help anything. I just was like shocked by it. But anyway, so he goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house, uh, heals her. And then at sundown, all, all the Jewish people are now coming out because it's the end of Sabbath and they're able to emerge. And what, what Mark tells us is literally the whole city comes, like everybody's there. He's just like, he's like healing everybody and he's preaching the gospel because he knows what he's called to do, right? Like he knows his calling is the kingdom of God is at hand. In the kingdom, sick people will become well. In the kingdom, blind people are going to see. In the kingdom, people who can't walk are going to walk. People with demons are not going to have demons anymore. So he just starts to do it, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the good news. And so he's healing all these people, uh, teaching, preaching, an exhausting day. I'm sure he gets to bed late and everybody's fired up because the whole village is there, right? And he's doing all this stuff. And then Mark tells us that he gets up early in the morning, and uh, let me read it for you specifically. So this is um, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. That that phrase, desolate place, is again the Greek word aremos. So Jesus goes back to the solitary place. Gets up early in the morning after an exhausting day of ministry and goes out, this time not to be tempted, but I would say to be reminded. He has to remember what he knew to be true the day before. Because now there's a flurry of success around him. Success can be really intoxicating and it can be really dangerous. And for Jesus, it was probably in his full humanity a little bit of both. And so Jesus, knowing himself, got up early in the morning so he could remember who he was. And as he went into the wilderness and spent time with the Father, finally as the sun comes up, the disciples get moving, and Peter and the boys show up, and they're fired up. Like, they're really excited. Like, Jesus, 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 you you gotta come back. Like, everybody's here. They're all gathering around. Everybody wants to see you because, like, you're doing stuff. Like, like, just move it into the modern day. This is like, 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 okay, look, Jesus, we, got, we, we rented a big facility and we have the smoke machine and the lasers and I have a worship band laid out and we are like ready to, we're gonna build the big one, man. We're gonna multi-site all over the place. So we're gonna be over, over in Nazareth and at the same time, we're gonna be over in, uh, in, in Jerusalem and we're, we're gonna have a big site. We're just gonna put a big site right in the middle. We're just gonna draw them all in. It's gonna be amazing, Jesus. Come on, let's go. Like they, they're seeing the, this kingdom thing, right? Like they're seeing it in literal terms. They're excited. And Jesus says to them, Nah, nah, let's go to the next place. So quite literally, he says, let us go to the next towns so that I can preach there also, for that's why I came out. What makes somebody do that? Why would Jesus turn from all of this uh, seemingly really good stuff? The kingdom is coming right here at Peter's mother-in-law's house. Like the kingdom is here. Why would he go to the next place? Well, remember when he came out of the wilderness, what did he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This is the message. 
and I need to get the message out to everybody. And so because I have to get the message out to everybody, we're going to go to the next town. This town saw it. They heard it. Now we're going to go to the next one. And it's not going to be big, and it's not going to be flashy, and some of those towns are not going to like us as much as the other towns do. But that's okay, because I know who I am. I'm not defined by my success. I'm not defined by the crowd. I'm not defined by how great this looks on the outside. Defined by what I'm called to do. We need to remember who we are in the quiet. We need to constantly come back and remember who Jesus has called us to be. You are my son. You are my daughter. In you I am well pleased. I was fully and completely as well pleased with you as I ever could be before you did anything. And so anything that you do does not add to it. And anything that you do wrong does not take away from it. And so we recenter in the quiet. And remember, this is who I am. This, this is what I'm called to be. A rule of life must bring us back to the core of who we are. And that only happens in the quiet. Because the voices around you are either affirming or denying something about the way that you're acting rather than speaking to the center core of who you are. It's the voice of God that speaks to the center core of us, to who we are. And the honest truth is that not every time in quiet is that profound. Some of you who practice quiet, silence, and solitude, you know that there are days that are just amazing, where it's just like you, you feel the presence of the Lord. And that five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes of silence is just like so rich and unbelievable. And there's other days that you, you hear the clock ticking, right? If you, if you have an old, anal- I have an old analog clock in my office. So I just hear the chick, 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 and that's it. Like just over, like, oh my goodness, am I still going? Is it time for me to do something yet? Some days are like that. And that's okay. Because the space set aside in a rule of life as a rhythm, it is what is needed for God to be able to speak. I, as a discipline, I want to set, shut down my, all of the outside voices for a period every day so that I can just center my heart. And some days, it's amazing. And some days, it's really nothing. But the point is, God meets us where we are. There's a conservative columnist uh, named Andrew Sullivan. Some of you know his work. Uh, he wrote a long, long-form article back in 2016 about a tech detox that he went on. He went uh, to kind of like a monastery and kind of shut all of the voices down. And he wrote this article. It was called, I, I Used to Be a Human Being. Excellent uh, article title. Um, on his reflections. Uh, he's a brilliant writer. And so uh, a couple things that he said that I think are helpful. He says this. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shape-shift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget that we have any. If the churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. That contrast between hedonism and distraction I think is a really good one because it's really easy for us to focus on the, um, the explicit sins, you know, the things that uh, jump out of our culture or our own lives. But that idea 
of being distracted, of just missing it. For many of us, that's just life in the modern world. We accept it as just normal. It's the way it is. And it's not. It's not supposed to be. And what we forget, what I forget, is that we control it. All this stuff, it has off buttons. The, the people that we talk to, we can choose to say, uh, not right now. I have another appointment, and that other appointment is with Jesus. You don't have to say the second part. You can. It doesn't matter. But you, you don't always have to have a voice speaking in. We control that. And that's the heart of a rule of life. The hard reality that we need to remember is that if you are going to try to add Jesus to your already busy life, it will be a miserable failure. Jesus cannot be added to a busy life. It doesn't work that way. I don't mean that Jesus can't be yours when you're busy. I mean, if you want to keep your entire life intact and just layer Jesus on top of it, believing that Jesus, a little bit of Jesus sprinkled into your busyness is gonna bring peace, you're gonna find out it's not gonna work. You know, we have this phrase in evangelicalism that says, I'm inviting Jesus into my heart. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It has good intentions. But the Bible doesn't say that we invite Jesus into our heart. What the Bible says is we die to ourselves and live the life of Christ. Inviting Jesus into our heart is layering him on top of a busy life. But dying to ourselves is saying, whatever it takes, I will get myself before him so that I can hear his voice. Ruth Haley Barton wrote an excellent book called Invitation to Silence and Solitude. It's a great uh, kind of start to this. Uh, lots of uh, biblical stories that help to ground you. So if you're interested, it's a great one to d- dig into. Uh, Dallas Willard wrote the uh, foreword to it, and he said something profound in that. Listen to what he says. It's a fallacy to think that one just needs more time. Unless a deeper solution is found, quote, more time will just fill up in the same way as the time we already have. The way to liberation and rest lies through a decision and a practice. More time is not going to fix you, but a decision and a practice will. And I believe that practice is solitude and silence within the larger practice of a rule of life, that we would have space to be able to hear, to get to the Aramos, the lonely place, and to be able to truly encounter God. When you get to the silence, When you get to the solitude, you're going to find two things that are really profound. First one is this. You're going to hear God for who he is, a revelation of God. You're going to see his glory and his beauty and his goodness, and you're going to see how majestic and mighty he is. And the second one is that you're going to have a revelation of yourself. You're going to see the need that you have. You're going to see the, the, uh, I I use this word as, as kindly as I can, the silliness of being defined by the stuff that we do. Because it's just silly in the scope of eternity. We're kids, and he's our father. And the stuff that we're doing is great, because he's invited us into it, but it doesn't identify us. And in silence, we find that. We find the voice of God. We find out who we are. Those same two things are true every time we come to the communion table. We find out about who God is, and we find out about who we are. Who's God? He loves us so much that he didn't just send Jesus as a spirit or an idea or a concept, but he sent Jesus as incarnate, flesh and blood, 
that his body could be broken and his blood could be shed so that we could have real life. Jacob talked about those prereqs. I love that idea. You know, um, uh, the only way to get through a prereq is to have a professor sign you into the class. Somebody who uh, has already gone before you has to say, I testify that this person is able to be in. With my, with my knowledge and my ability, I testify that this person's able to come in. What we find out about God is that he's that kind of God who's willing through his own sacrifice to sign us into heaven, to sign us into the kingdom of the heavens, which is now. But we also find out about us. We find out that all of us are needy, broken, in need of grace, that all of us come equally before the cross. That when we come to the table, there's not a, a line for the good people and the kind of good people and the getting better people. Right? We don't have like stations where I direct you, oh, no, no, you go over here, right? And we don't do that because everybody comes equally right? wherever you are, whatever your journey's been. You've been walking with Jesus for 50, 60, 70 years, great. You've been walking with Jesus for 50 minutes, awesome. Like, get in line. We're all, we're all here together, right? When we find out about us, we recognize that the distinctions between us are very small. And the grace of Jesus is really big. And so that's the way I want to invite you to come to the table today. Uh, the, the silence that you need, you need day in and day out. I need day in and day out. But if nothing else, I want you to have it for just a moment this morning. For you to come to the table and in the quiet, hear who God is, how much he loves you. And hear who you are, how much you need him. And that he says over you and I, you are my son, you are my daughter, in you I am well pleased.